The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Merciful God, you sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation. Give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins so that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Good morning, church. Here we are again. We're going from judges to Jesus. We're going from The people who in Greg's sermon last week were compared to those of the people living in Sodom and Gomorrah straight into the Christmas season. And uh, this sermon, in a lot of ways, is a bit of a bridge. We've been hearing for the last two and a half months this line from the book of Judges that's repeated over and over again. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. It's repeated over and over. And as I just said, the book ends with the Israelites, or at least some of the Israelites, with one of the tribes being compared to the people of Gomorrah, who uh, who, who God ultimately destroyed. After we get through the first couple chapters of Judges, things don't go all that well for them. As a matter of fact, the only time it really goes well are when the people cry out for God Because life is so hard and he has compassion on them and intervenes. What the Israelites needed was a supreme king who had the strength and authority to rule justly over the land and over the people. In order to suppress their propensity for self-destruction and idol worship. Let me say that once more. What the Israelites needed was a supreme king who had the strength and the authority to rule justly over the land and the people in order to suppress their, their propensity for self-destruction and idol worship. It would have been great if a human king were the answer. Two books later, the Israelites get their first king. His name is Saul. 
And on his best day, I think that Saul was mediocre. He looked like a king. The book of 1 Samuel tells us he was very strong. He was very big. He led his armies to war. But eventually he falls out of favor with God and he's killed in battle. And the next king, David, second king of Israel, although he was one of Israel's finest Old Testament characters, he made a lot of terrible choices. The choices that he, that he made led to the pain of those around him, hardship, civil war. The choices that he made caused the death of tens of thousands of people. And yet he's still called a man after God's own heart. But even this great example of an Old Testament character was far from perfect. And his son Solomon was not nearly as great as him, although perhaps on the outside it may have looked so. But Solomon accumulated wealth through heavy taxes on his people. He accumulated wives like property. And in Solomon's own words, at the end of his life, he largely squandered much of it. And his sons, and his sons after him, although with some rare but notable exceptions, his sons were far worse. And eventually there was another civil war and the kingdom was split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom eventually became bordered by Assyria. And Assyria was one of the most powerful empires to ever grow out of the Middle East. And they looked upon this region of the promised land and saw that it was good and they wanted it. And indeed, they went and took it. Sometime in the first few chapters of Isaiah, the Assyrian army, as the Bible says, overflowed the banks like a flooding river, and there was nothing able to stop it. And so enter Isaiah, and he's talking to the people in the southern kingdom, and they're afraid. The Assyrian Empire has just conquered their kin to the north. They're making their way south. Their king dies, not the Assyrian king, but the Israelite king dies. And in approximately the year 730 B.C., Isaiah has a prophecy for the people who are lost. The people who are in the process of losing their homeland, they wonder if God, they wonder if God even has a solution. And if he does, what does that solution look like? Is God going to save them? And as I said, the northern kingdom had already been conquered, and they're in trouble. The line of kings did not yield for them what they had hoped that it was. So Isaiah delivers a prophetic word to the people who are desperate for hope. And I think in a lot of ways, church, we as a nation are desperate for hope. I was listening to NPR, not this past week, but the week before this story aired, that the suicide rate in the United States in the last decade in many areas is 40% higher than it was a decade ago. 40% higher. Clearly, our economic recovery does not seem to be changing that for the better. As a matter of fact, the life expectancy of people in the United States is being noticeably dragged down from drug overdoses, 
that are ravaging our families and our broader culture. You don't have to turn on the news for very long to hear about politics and a media that are filled with hate and divisiveness, probably primarily because our media is able to sell more commercials when they report on those things. Our families are separating in record numbers. Our schools are, incre- are increasingly places of violence. Our poor are being used as political bargaining chips, as our racial identities are being used by those in power to incite fear and hate. Peace is something that our world rarely sees. How many generations of peace, how many generations of people in our world and in our world's history have ever been without significant suffering? We've been talking in Sunday school about the first 300 years of Christianity. There was a lot of time where there was not peace. There were not very many generations that didn't suffer. And even if we're not talking about Christian persecution, our world is filled with suffering. The study of history is mostly just the study of one strong man after another, conquering all that they can see. But Isaiah, 3,000 years ago, brings words to us about peace. He affirms both then and now that there is only one salvation, only one peace that is sufficient to meet the needs of our sinful hearts in this broken world. So today's sermon is a big picture view of Jesus and our world. And there's three things that we're going to talk about. The first is God's coming kingdom. The second is God's plan of rescue. And the third is the defeat of sin. So God's coming kingdom, God's plan of rescue, and the defeat of sin. Before I jump in, let me pray for us. God, thank you that we can be here this morning. God, I would pray desperately for your kingdom to be restored to earth. I would pray, God, for healing for the hurts that this world has. I would pray, Jesus, that your peace, I would pray, God, that your rule would come quickly. God, help us to rightly understand your kingship and our place in this world so that we can be part of bringing your peace here. I would pray for us this morning, God, that you would give me the words and that you would give all of us understanding of your plan for us. In your name I would pray. Amen. So God's coming kingdom. We're going to sort of start with the end game. I'm going to start with the, with the end of what God wants his universe to look like. Because God wants his world back. We should never think anything else. God wants us. God wants our world back. So in the verse here says the government will be on his shoulders. Let's talk about that for a moment from the Israelite point of view. See, what the Israelites were looking for more than anything was rest. That's what they wanted. The Israelites wanted rest. They wanted rest from their oppressors. They wanted rest from their warring neighbors. They wanted rest from famine and slavery and armies and destruction. The Israelites just wanted rest. 
So what the Israelites would have heard from this passage, the government will be on his shoulders, what they would have heard is that God will control everything. It doesn't mean that God is going to be the House of Representatives and the Senate and the Supreme Court and the executive branch. That's when we think about government, we sort of think about the people who occupy government positions. But what this verse means is that God's rule will come. And not only will God's rule come, but it will happen. The world will be as God intended it to be. The government, the world, will be on his shoulders. And in God's established kingdom, all creation will be fully claimed by him, fully functioning, fully holy, where we have that peace and rest and joy. It was going to be like original creation where there's no shame, there's no pain, there's no war or hunger or disparity. In God's coming kingdom, there's not going to be things like inequality or racism or poverty. There's, no, there's not going to be any more choices made by people that negatively affect other people. It's going to be a kingdom of peace and rest for its inhabitants, for us, where we're going to be able to exercise our creativity, our free will, our desire to build and learn and be in relationship without fear or jealousy or judgment or hurt. That is what God's kingdom is going to look like. That is what is meant when Isaiah says the government will be on his shoulders. That sounds pretty great. But the big question that I'm sure all of you are asking is, well, how do we get there? Because it seems like it's pretty far from where we are. So, number two, God's plan of rescue. So there's a lot of things about God's kingdom and how it's going to come that I don't know. There's a lot of things that the Bible says that I don't understand. And what I'm about to say in the next five to seven minutes is not to be not meant to be taken as a fully inclusive picture of God's plan. But I want to talk for a moment about verse 7. It says that the kingdom is going to be established. God's going to, is going to be establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Establishing it and upholding it with justice and and righteousness. Now we know that we are part of this plan because the Bible uses phrases like we died with him, we're resurrected with him, we're his ambassadors. I think we can loosely translate some of these things like we're teammates. We work on his behalf. We're continuing the work he started. So there's sort of two parts to this. There's the part that God's going to do, and there's the part that we're going to do. God's plan includes us doing things like this. Every time the strong help the weak, we help bring God's kingdom here. Every time the rich help the poor, every time those with influence stick up for those without, when we help aliens and sojourners, which are fancy Old Testament words for immigrants. Every time we care for orphans and widows, the sick, the oppressed, the needy, 
we help bring God's kingdom to earth. We help establish the ultimate destiny that a reclaimed earth has. Every time we bring light to darkness, we proclaim that God is coming. So how do we do this? That's not easy. Matthew 5 and Luke 6 recount some uh, things that Jesus has to say. I'm going to sort of combine them here. But Jesus tells us how to overcome all the stinkiness and messiness that this world has. It says, love your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. That's how we bring justice. That's our part in reclaiming earth. Isaiah is telling the people that God's kingdom is one that's built on his attributes, on God's attributes. Love, equality, kindness, dignity, goodness. Jesus tells us that to some like unknown but very important amount, we have a role to play in bringing this about. And I don't know how much we do compared to how much God does. There's a lot of different theologies that people have about how God is going to return. Is God going to return to a place that's so broken and so destroyed that only he can save it? Or is God going to return to a place where our work through the power of the Holy Spirit has almost finished returning earth to its original goodness? I don't know, and honestly, I don't think it matters. Because for us, what's important is that we do those things that Jesus tells us to do in order to reclaim God's world. And lastly, the defeat of sin. There's two verses here I'd like to, I'd like to talk about. In verse 7, it says, The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And just before, in verse 6, it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given. So the defeat of sin comes through us through Jesus to solve our biggest and really our only root problem. At work, I spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about root cause. So if you're ever involved in manufacturing, root cause is something that's really critical. Because you can see something that's gone wrong and you can make an observation about it, but that doesn't help you make it better. So the other day as I was walking around work, I came across this terrible scene where a giant glass tray had fallen and the glass that was on top of it broke right through it, and it was a huge mess. There were people with push brooms all over the place. There was a giant 45-gallon trash barrel that was full of broken and very expensive glass. So I asked the supervisor there, what happened? And the answer was, we broke some glass. <laughs> Thanks, man. Right? That's the observation. We broke some glass. But what I want to know is, why did it happen? Because the why keeps it from happening next time. The observation is just an observation. Let me give one more illustration. The Kapiloffs love going to, going to go see the Star Wars movies. They're sort of very epic, or at least, you know, that's how the original ones were before people started playing around with them. 
So we often go to the movie theater to see them because just there's something about the sound filling your entire brain that makes it special. There's something about a screen that's 30, 40 feet wide that makes it amazing. So we're there with some friends, and we decide to buy the big popcorn. You know, the big popcorn, it comes in like a 40-gallon barrel. Maybe at my instruction, I had like four sticks of melted butter, a handful of salt over it. But we just bought one because it's like a gluttonous amount of popcorn. And the movie's about to start. We had just sat down. And all of a sudden, I hear, ah! And I look down, and the bucket is literally upside down. <laughs> upside down. And, you know, there was literally so much that in the tiered theater, it wouldn't all fit on the tier that it spilled in. It's falling down in the seats in front of it. And I said, what happened? And I hear, Dad, it spilled. <laughs> well, thanks. I can actually smell it because it's taking up like so much volume in the movie theater. So my other friend went to go get the broom from, you know, the front desk and, you know, like a big 40-gallon trash can because that's what it's going to take to hold this 35-gallon thing of spilled popcorn. So what's the root cause? Well, we didn't know what the root cause was. We had just, we weren't able to really extract any more information from the children. But then the next year, there was another Star Wars movie that went out. We went to a different theater because I think we were banned from the first one. With the same other family, and wouldn't you know it, we had another tub of upside-down popcorn at the second. So as it turns out, the root cause is Laney. The root cause is Laney. So when the next one comes out, we're going to do our popcorn very differently. Now that we know what the root cause is, we can correct the problem. It's why we can't have nice things. So more seriously, we observe that our marriages are hard. We observe, that our, we observe that our relationships are strained, that our desires are not wholesome, that our goals pit us against each other, that our motives are not pure, that our needs are not fulfilled. Those are all observations. Those are all things that speak to the world's messiness and its brokenness. But what's the root cause? The root cause is sin. That's the problem. That's what Jesus came to defeat. The story of Judges is that when we're left to ourselves, we can't overcome the evil that destroys us. Maybe at best we can sort of keep it at bay in our own lives, but we'll never be able to overcome it in others. Last week, Greg told us the story of the Benjamites, how they were almost all destroyed, but in an effort for their tribe to continue on, what did they do? They go and kidnap the young women from another tribe. Even if that other tribe had done everything right, they still were going to experience intense loss and pain as the result of others. 
This is sin in our world. Even if you can keep yourself from doing wrong ever, which you can't, but even if you could, you would still experience the problem of sin from others. And of course, we can't. And so as others hurt us, we hurt them. So how is sin defeated? Well, sin's only defeated through Jesus. And this child that this passage talks about was given to us to undo that sin. And when I say given, I mean literally given. Not loaned, not joint ownership, but literally given to be murdered. The prophet Isaiah goes on in chapter, 15, in chapter 53 to talk about Jesus and what that would mean for him to be given. And here's some of the words that chapter 53 uses to talk about what it meant for Jesus to be given. It says crushed, despised, rejected, pierced, oppressed, bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, cut off from the land of the living, poured out his soul to death. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God loves us so much. He wants us back so much that he was willing to give Jesus to reclaim us. So how is this sin defeated? Well, sin has afflicted this world and has brought separation from God. And it's brought death. Jesus overcame death, not only for himself through his resurrection, but also for us. And as I've said repeatedly in this, God wants his world back. He wants us back. And to do so, a ransom had to be paid to free us from sin. And that ransom was paid by Jesus' death. 